Uh, the reading tonight's from Luke 4, starting at verse 14, going through to verse 44. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? What authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out? And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's words. Uh, evening, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name's Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to do so. But we have much to look at this evening uh, here in uh, Luke chapter 4. Let me pray again, uh, and then we'll look at this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, of course, we gather this evening and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. He's wonderful. And as we turn to his description of 
why he came, and we look at him at work, whether these are familiar truths or all very new to us, would we be struck by him? How wonderful he is. And would we respond, therefore, by loving him, trusting him, following him? For the honor of your name, we pray it. Amen. Now, what I'd love to give you this evening is a demonstration of the power of God. Or for some of you who might prefer it, a demonstration of the power of God. Or if that sort of works for you, just hear it in those terms. I'm not going to do that. Uh, that's not quite me. But if that works for you, just sort of turn it up in your head, uh, uh, the volume a little bit. Because that's what Luke wants to talk about here. I mean, everyone in this room, that's what we need. God's power at work in our lives. And here in Luke chapter 4, Luke says, you'll find it in the preaching of Jesus Christ. That is God's power at work here. So here uh, in this passage, Jesus describes himself as coming to proclaim. We'll get to it in a moment, but chapters 18 and 19, excuse me, verses 18 and 19, his self-description, three times he says, I've come to proclaim. And when he speaks or, or preaches or proclaims, everyone's amazed. So verse 22, just this is the overview before we get going. Verse 22, they listened and all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Verse 32, Jesus taught, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words have authority. He drives out a demon, we'll get to that, and um, what does everyone say? Verse 36, after Jesus has driven out a demon, all the people were amazed and said, what words? They don't say, oh, look, a demon's left. That's interesting. Says, what words this man speaks? Because there's extraordinary power here. So I don't know, this may be familiar to you this evening or, or not. I don't know. But how do you bring good news to those who are poor? Oh, Jesus says you proclaim his word. How do you liberate people who are in prison? Jesus says you proclaim his word. How do you give sight back to those who are blinded? You proclaim God's word. How do you, we'll get there, drive back the power of Satan? You proclaim God's word. That's what you do. So here is the power of God at work. If you're joining us this evening, then we're spending a good chunk of this term in Luke's gospel, particularly uh, chapters 4 to 9. Uh, back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke tells us why he's written, no need to turn it up, but uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he says that he's written his account so that we may have certainty about the Christian faith. And chapters 4 to 9 are really about who Jesus is, why he came. And Luke, therefore, wants us to have certainty on those issues, certainty on who the identity of Jesus as God incarnate, and certainty about why he came. And really, that's the primary purpose of this passage. Can we just be clear, one and all, why did Jesus come? It was to proclaim good news. Well, it's not the only reason. He had to die for that good news to be a reality. But he came to proclaim the good news, that through his death and resurrection, you could be set free from sin. You could have a relationship with God and live forever with him. 
That's why he came. So we're going to look at it in these uh, three ways, these three headings, uh, just to work through the text. Uh, he came to proclaim freedom, 14 to 21. He was met with rejection, 22 to 30. And he showed the power of his word, 31 to the end. Okay. First, we'll spend most time here. He came to proclaim freedom. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. You get a summary statement, verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Remember, just do that thing in your head if you want. The power of the Spirit. If that works for you, just do that. Okay. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. That's striking. Jesus is then full of the power of God, and he teaches. That's what he does. Things change. I don't think it's quite the same now. Certainly when I was a student at university, there was enormous talk about power evangelism. The, 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 the way to persuade people who are skeptical that they become Christians is you had to perform miracles in front of them. Most of us weren't very good at performing miracles, to be honest. A few magic tricks with cups and things, but um, miracles are uh, not so good. And, and it, was, it was silliness, really. Lots of silliness around at the time. It was Jesus. He's full of the power of God. And what does he do? He teaches. And news spreads about him. Although it's interesting that the first incident that Luke records in detail of the ministry in Jesus is a sermon that's met with enormous opposition. Would you have written that? I'm going to write a life of the account of Jesus. And the first thing I want to tell you about it when he, when he got going was it went wrong. But again, Luke wants us to have certainty that this is all true. So when you look around and see that the message of Jesus Christ is taught and lots of people say, no, don't be surprised. Happened to Jesus? You're not him? So if it happened to him, you know, he's probably a better talker, speaker than you are. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. I think that's why this story comes up first. Anyway, here we are. Jesus goes to his hometown then of Nazareth. And uh, he goes there on the Sabbath day, and uh, he stands up. My turn to read. And so verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That was that week's text. You know, there you go, have a bit of Isaiah. Unrolling it, he chose, he found the place where it's written. So his choice of Jesus. And he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Jesus says, this is who I am. As you might have guessed, he didn't write a blog in the first century. Had he written a blog, it would be a bit like this. You know, you, you, most of the blogs I go to, you click on the about. Who's, who's this person? You click on the about. I'm, oh, look, I'm a vicar. So most of the ones I tend to read, they all say something like, hello, I'm David, follower of Jesus Christ, husband of Mary Lou, father to 17 children, pastor of mega church of 10 million. And they all sort of, basically, they all kind of say the same sort of things to them. If Jesus had a blog and he clicked on about... He'd have said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. 
And three times we're told, or Jesus says, I've come to proclaim. It's two different verbs, but it's the same meaning. To proclaim, verse 18, good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and a year of the Lord's favor. Fundamentally, he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, or you could translate it gospel to the poor. I've come to proclaim gospel good news to the poor. Literally, I guess, momentous announcement. The first times you read that word in sort of the, the, the Greek Old Testament is um, when King Saul has his head chopped off and everyone says, oh, I've got good news for you. Well, you wouldn't really translate that good news. But it's momentous news. The king's lost his head. I mean, that is quite big news in any culture. So Jesus says, I have dramatic news, momentous news. But in this context, it is good news for people. Uh, one or two of you have heard me say this before, but it's, it, I've always loved this little story or account. There's a big deal of difference between good news and good advice. You can put it in these terms. Uh, uh, medieval kingdom uh, is invaded and there's a ravaging, pillaging horde of uh, entered the borders and uh, causing desolation. And uh, the king says, fear not, my people, I'm going to go meet them in combat. And off he trots with his knights uh, to go into battle. Uh, two different scenarios, okay? Scenario one, a herald comes back from battle and says, the king sends back good advice. The invading army are terrifying and they've overrun him and his knights, and they'll be here in a day. I advise you to lock the gates of the city, uh, stock up on food, and get ready for a long siege. Now, that is good advice. And good advice is kind, if you're in that sort of scenario. Okay? Better, too. Okay. Harold comes back and says, the king sends good news. The ravaging hordes have been driven back by his mighty knights and the king. And you have nothing to fear. See, there's a world of difference between good news, get ready for battle, it's going to be tough, and good advice. The king has conquered. Fear not. And fundamentally, Jesus says, I've come to bring good news. Oh, look, I'll tell you, I'll give you good advice. I'll tell you how to live. But fundamentally, I've come to bring you good news, momentous news of what I have done, or in fact, at this point in time, what I will do. I will conquer sin. I will die for you. I will bear the wrath of God for you. I will open up the doors of heaven for you. I'll do it. You just trust me. Good news. I mean, that is good news. So Jesus doesn't come with good advice, he comes with good news. Now in verses 18 to 19, all these different phrases, they're parallel. You have to use them to interpret one another. It's a poetic description. So when Jesus says he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, it's the same thing as freedom for the prisoners. People get a bit confused on that. The poor in Luke's gospel, you trace all the uses of the word of the group, the poor, it covers all sorts of poverty. Financial, yes, but mainly, chiefly, it's spiritual, Paul. That morally, we got nothing. We are bankrupt. We are morally or spiritually speaking, beggars in the street saying, help. We contribute nothing to our own salvation. We, we, we're not good enough. 
we need you. We need God to give us. That is poor. Can't just be financially poor because Jesus is about to give the example of uh, Naaman, the Syrian, in verse 27, and he was loaded. You get into chapter 5, and the first people that respond to Jesus' offer of good news, they're all very wealthy tax collectors. It's not a financial thing. It's poor in Luke is the spiritually humble. That's who he's talking about. Similarly for prisoners. Verse 18 can't mean political prisoners because Jesus never sets anyone free from prison. So he'd be a failure. He's not talking about that. But he does liberate people like you and me from being imprisoned by the devil, by sin, by our selfish desires. That's what he does. That's more obvious for some than others, perhaps, on a superficial level. Just think of a couple of conversations this week. A surveyor. With, you know, if you met him walking in the streets of Mayfair, he's a successful guy. But he's just recovering from telling his wife that he's gambled away all their savings. He's addicted to gambling. Or a minister that I spoke to in the week. Confessed, actually, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I mean, there's addiction, there's imprisonment. He's come clean, he's recovering from it, but all these things just go on for months, years. I mean, some of these things are super, you know, excuse me, some of these things are, are on, on the surface and we can see them fairly clearly, gambling or alcohol, but all of us are just addicted to our own selfishness. We're imprisoned by that, according to the scriptures. And Jesus says, I've come to set you free from your imprisonment. I've come to open your eyes so you see how wonderful Jesus is. I've come to bring you good news because spiritually you've got nothing and you need me to give you salvation. So he preaches the sermon. Oh, sorry, so he, st- he sits down and um, then he actually gives a little sermonette. Verse 21, I guess we don't get much of it. We only get the headline. Verse 21, he began by saying, so obviously there's a lot more, he began by saying to them today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So why did Jesus come? Well, he says, I've come not for freedom from, free anyone from political oppression, not to free anyone from physical sickness. I've come to free people who are spiritually poor, who are imprisoned in selfishness, who are locked out of heaven. That's who I've come for. Naturally, that's you and that's me. That's the whole of the human race. I've come good news. I've come to proclaim, or he came to proclaim freedom. Second little thing, let's pick up the pace. Uh, he was met with rejection, uh, verse 22 and uh, down to 30. Uh, starts well, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so verse 23, uh, he says to them, well, surely you, you, uh, you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what you've heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, look, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what's all this stuff about being imprisoned? We're not imprisoned. What's all this stuff about being poor? I've got a massive horse. Look at my horse. 
Um, what are you talking about? I've got no problems. Me and God are fine. And um, how about some miracles? Shut up all this. Do a bit of that. You know, a bit of, a bit of healings and that sort of stuff. That's what we want to see. And Jesus is oh, you may well be politely applauding, but I know what's going on in your hearts. It's all very familiar, verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. Oh, let me give you some examples of what happened in the Old Testament. So in the time of Elijah, 1 Kings, verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Do you remember? Maybe not, but uh, they would have done. Do you remember in 1 Kings, famine across the land, across the whole of Israel? But God's people, they didn't ask the Lord for help. They didn't cry out to him. They didn't say, Lord, we need you. So the Lord went to someone who wasn't an Israelite, a pagan, a widow in Zarephath, fed her. Well, let me give you another example. Verse 27, book of two kings in the time of Elisha. There were many in Israel with leprosy, and yet none of them, none of the Israelites were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian again. Decades after Elijah's ministry, Elisha and um, well, loads of people in Israel, of God's people, that have got leprosy, but none of them say, Lord, we need you. We're lost without you, help. But Naaman the Syrian, he did, even though he was a very wealthy, successful military commander. Do you see this widow and, and this military commander, why did they get help? When all of Israel didn't in the past, because they said, help. And God did. Because to be a believer in the Lord, all you need is need. You have to accept that you're spiritually bankrupt, morally imprisoned. You have to accept a need. What about the people in Jesus' hometown? Well, they didn't. All the people in the synagogue were furious, verse 28, when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked away through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus says to the people in this hometown, you know you're bankrupt spiritually, you'll never get to heaven. You need me to give you salvation. And they raged. But how do you hear that? Well, let me put it in these silly terms. Uh, imagine after the, 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 the service tonight came up and we're having a bit of a chat, and uh, a couple of minutes into the conversation, I say to you, look, I hope you don't mind me saying, uh, but um, before you go and speak to anyone else, can I advise you to go and clean your teeth? Or um, take a breath mint? Because um, you're fragrant. I don't know how to put it nicely. I don't know how you'd respond if I said that to you. Maybe you would rage. How dare you? What a rude thing to say. Or maybe you'd say, with some embarrassment. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> or whatever it may be, tic-tacs galore. Um, whatever it may be. How would you respond? I don't know how you'd respond. The people here, Jesus says to them, can I just say to you that um, morally or spiritually speaking, you stink. 
You stink. You're poor. You're imprisoned. You're hopeless. And these people rage. So I don't know how you respond to that. Let me give you two questions before we move on. The first is simply this. Are you, um, are you poor enough to come to Jesus? That is, are you humble enough to come to Jesus? Are you willing to recognize that you have a spiritual need that you'll never accomplish yourself? You need him to give it to you? Are you poor enough? Humble enough? Or does that make you rage? And you think, how dare you? I'm a very good person. That's the main question. But the second one is a more distant application, I guess. But here's, uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, I guess the one question this would throw up in is a minor one. But um, how do you respond to preaching? It's very, I thought it was striking this. Verse 22, Jesus gives a sermon. All, the speak, all, the, all spoke well on him, excuse me, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. He's a very good speaker, isn't he? I mean, he had some very good stories, and uh, I like the way he jumped up and down, or whatever it may be. I like the way he said the word power. Um, he's a very good speaker. I disagree with everything he says, but he's a very good speaker. And that's sort of what goes on here. It's the sort of thing I quite often get at Christmas. People, if they're forced, you know, guests come along and they're sort of forced into a conversation, or maybe they won't have a conversation, so you're, you're a very good speaker, because people are generally polite in central London, mostly. Uh, and you say, oh, what did you make of what was said? Well, I disagree with all of it. I say, well, I'm sure, I'm, okay. And sometimes you get a conversation, sometimes not. But for those of us who are Christians, don't say when the word of God is taught, well, that was a highly entertaining sermon. Okay. That's all right, maybe, but what will you do now? Do, are you going to love Jesus now? Are you going to conform your life to him? Oh, no, I just quite like being entertained. Well, to be honest, there's better entertainment at Leicester Square if you want that. Or don't say, what I really enjoy are um, sort of highly intellectual sermons. Okay, well, that's all right. No problem with that. But what are you going to do with it? Are you now going to love Jesus more? I spoke to someone the other day, not here at church. It was over the summer. Um, and they were sort of quite pleased. And they told me, oh, look, uh, I've got in a cabinet at home uh, over 20 years' worth of sermon notes that I've filed on all sorts of books of the Bible and uh, I take my notes thoroughly, and at the bottom of every corner, uh, the bottom of every page in the corner, I give the sermon a mark out of ten, just so um, just so when I sort of go back and think, oh, what was going on in the book of Ezekiel? I go back and, well, okay, here's what was going on, but I only gave the sermon a seven, so maybe I, you know, I don't know, maybe that isn't true what was going on. And he's sort of quite pleased with this, and sort of thought I might be impressed at how. Um, and so I found myself saying, oh, and, and do you also give a score in the other corner? for how your heart responded. And in truth, I'm just not sure he had any idea what I was talking about. He sort of laughed and went on, went off. But that's the, the crowd here. Oh, he's such a, oh, Jesus, what a great speaker, huh? Great speaker. Let's get him back next year. 
just don't just don't do anything that he says. Ignore all the content. Just enjoy the gags, I don't know, or enjoy the the, the rhetoric. Enjoy the oratory. Don't you can't do that. If you've been a Christian for years, don't fall into that trap. Whether you want entertainment or academic lectures, or how will your heart respond? That's the question. Yeah. He came to proclaim freedom. He was met with rejection. Don't be surprised, says Luke. Don't let that undermine your certainty in Jesus Christ, because people will always reject him. They did. First thing I want to tell you about his ministry, actually, was people rejected him. He came to proclaim freedom. He was met with rejection. Last, he showed the power of his word. 31 to the end. Now, we haven't got time to do great justice to this, but let me bring out the main point. Clearly, there's an emphasis here on Jesus conquering evil supernatural powers. Twice, we're told, he drives out demons. First at some length, 33 to 35, and then towards the end, verse 41, demons came out of many people. But that's not the primary emphasis, I don't think, of the section. Because again, we're told, verse 31, Jesus taught, and they were amazed. Verse 35, he speaks, and demons are driven out. Verse 36, the people are amazed at what he says. Verse 39, with illness, he rebukes fever, speaks against it, and it comes out. Verse 41, again, he rebukes demons, and they do as, he's t- as they're told. I think in one sense, the point here is, how do you conquer evil? It is with the authoritative Word of God. I um, every now and again, I don't often have time, but I did enjoy. I, I knew he'd have something funny to say, so I read Martin Luther on this. Because he's always got a good sort of turn of phrase, and he put it simply, uh, I thought memorably to my mind. The simplest of laymen, armed with Scripture, is greater than the mightiest of popes against the power of Satan. Power. Martin probably did do that, actually. He was quite a... Um, a do you see what he's saying? It doesn't matter who you are. If you've got the word of God, that's all you need. Against Satan. Look, we haven't got time to do the, the details justice. Notice a few things or things that come up. Well, why does Jesus tell the demons to be silent? I don't know, really. I guess, why would you want... If you're in a court, and so, would you want someone who's a known liar as a witness on your side... Why would you want demons testifying to you? I think that's why he wants them to shut up. Notice the second little thing. Notice, I think it's lovely, Jesus' care for individuals. So amidst the high-level ministry, lots of individuals, verse 38, Jesus left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. They asked Jesus to help her. He bent over her. He rebuked the fever. It left her. Verse 40, all sorts of people come to him with his illnesses and he lays his hands on them, on each one of them. Not distant, involved, caring. See, the the devil is a bringer of sadness and death, but Jesus brings healing, life, joy, wherever he goes. But notice last thing, at the end of this 
first phase of his ministry. He withdraws, verse 42, goes for a time of prayer on his own, and to reorientate or get clear in his own mind, I guess, what he's doing. So many demands on Jesus' time. So the crowd, they came to him. They tried to keep him from leaving them. But verse 43, he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Do you see his priority? It is a striking one. All sorts of people with illness and sickness come to him. And he says, I could stay here the whole of my life and heal lots of different illnesses. And that would be a good thing. But it's not why I came. My priority is to go and speak. Proclaim. Preach. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's Luke's way of saying, I must proclaim all that I've come to do in the light of the Old Testament. That's what that phrase means. Now, you and I, if we're Christians here, we need to be aware of that as a priority. Because if you're a Christian, you, you, it doesn't take long to work out. You, you'll always be more popular if you do something very practical to help someone who's sick or poor. You'll always be more popular if you do that than when you open your mouth and say, Jesus is the only way for you to get to heaven. You're imprisoned and poor without him. One thing will make you, people will say, yay, and the other will go, ooh. Do you just need to clock the priority that Jesus has got here? But please don't mishear me. As a church, there's still plenty you can do. We'd have care for people around us, be it pregnancy, crisis, counseling, helping the homeless back into work, uh, the Tamar ministry to traffic women, lots of people involved in those things, and they're great. Inside church, care for people in distress, deacons fund for those struggling financially, mercy meals in crunch times. I was hearing this week of people using their annual leave just to give exhausted mums a break. Those are great things to do. Don't stop. And yet, Jesus says there is a priority which is to tell people of him and the good news of why he's come. That's the most important thing you can do for anyone. As some will know, I have, um, I've watched both my parents slowly die of cancer. It took my dad two and a half years. Uh, he died a while ago. Uh, my mother, still going just about. It's a really brutal disease. As you watch it eat away people's strength and their dignity and their honor. It's a really brutal disease as you see it ravage people over time. But, but it isn't as bad as being shut out from an eternity with God in heaven. What the Bible simply calls hell. And Jesus knew that. He said, look, I could heal people the rest of my life, and that's a good thing to do, because disease is a, is, it's a wicked thing to watch. Cancer is a wicked thing to watch at work. But speaking about the salvation that's on offer through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
that can save people forever. Or in the short term, in the short 70-odd years we have, it looks like saving people from disease is the most important thing. It's a wonderful thing. But in the scheme of eternity, saving people from hell for heaven, that is more important. We can do both. But Jesus says, don't lose track of the priority. I've come to proclaim the good news that the poor can be rich if they trust in me, that the imprisoned can be set free for heaven through the cross and resurrection. That's why I've come. Jesus here, he shows the power of his word. So he came to proclaim good news. And so I guess the questions for you and me are, are we humble enough to accept it? And if we've done so, and we're Christians, and maybe for a long time, are we still clear on his priorities? Because he came to proclaim good news. Let me lead us in prayer together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus is not unclear of why he came. It is to bring good news to the poor. Father, of course, first of all, we have to accept that we're poor. We have to accept that we're imprisoned, and some of us don't like doing that. But for those who are willing to recognize what is spiritually true, here is wonderful news. Not a list of advice of things we have to do, but just a message that we have to embrace and delight in, and a Savior who we can find joy in. Would we do that? Embrace this good news and share it as our priority, we pray. In his name, amen.